This week, imagine you were in charge of deciding where TDs can run for election, how to manage fake news, and also online political advertising in Ireland. Well, there is one man and one commission who is now responsible for that. And on this week's podcast, we're getting all the skinny from him. Let me explain. Let me explain with Sean Defoe, a News Talk original. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for listening this week. Art O'Leary, he is the Chief Executive of the Electoral Commission and he joins me on the show to talk through a whole range of things because they have a huge job. They were set up earlier on this year, something that's been talked about for quite a long while uh, and their first bigger work was what we talked about a couple of weeks ago on the Boundary Commission podcast, putting that together. But there is an awful lot more on his plate and this week we go through it in a bit of detail and a bit of a, a longer podcast than you might be used to. Take a listen. Uh, so Art, listen. I know who you are. Uh, people in the media bubble know who you are, but for people who don't, uh, who are you and where where have you been working the meeting up now to, to being the Chief Executive of the Electoral Commission? Uh, thanks, Sean. My name is Art O'Leary. Um, I am, as you said, Chief Executive of Von Commission Tauchoin, which is the Electoral Commission. I have worked in the slightly unusual um, space between the worlds of politics and administration. For the last 30 years, um, I'm a civil servant. I joined at the age of 17. But for the last 30 years, I've spent time, spent seven years at Orson Uchtdrawn as Secretary General to the President. I ran a number of citizens' assemblies and the original Constitutional Convention. And I spent 20 years in the House of the Oireachtas as head of parliamentary committees, human resources, broadcasting communications, and uh, a number of procedural functions. So. It's not a typical civil servant's role, but it is something I've enjoyed hugely. So it seems like a natural path that led me now to the Electoral Commission. But let's see in the five years that we have ahead. Yeah, we'll, we'll find out then. A fascinating career. Uh, there's a tell-all book, I have a, a feeling, somewhere in there, I, is there? Oh, the, the reason they pay me so much money is that I won't write a book, I think. <laughs> um, um, I, I, I think these secrets will come, will go to the grave with me. Uh, I don't know. We'll try and get them out of you, nonetheless. Um, so the Electric Commission is something that's been talked about for an awful long time. Finally was set up this year. Uh, and you're, you've done your first big, big bit of work now with the Boundary Commission. But what exactly are you in charge of? Like what In the legislation that it finally came down to, what's your purview now uh, as we look into the future? Well, we have a number of existing functions um, that were done by other bodies. You know, you, you, you saw the work that we did on the constituency review um, for Dáil and European Parliament constituencies. We'll do the same for the local authorities um, it, after the next census. Um, I'm the registrar of political parties. We run information campaigns um, for referendums, which is going to keep us busy, I think, in the next couple of years um, by the sounds of things. And we also have a, a number of new and very exciting functions as well around research, education, public engagement. We get to oversee the electoral register. And then um, there are parts of the act, which we'll probably come to during the course of our conversation around the regulation of online political advertising and also misinformation and disinformation in um, the electoral space. So is this a kind of a starting point? This is your your first powers, and as we go on, you're going to add bits and pieces in. Is that it? Yeah. Well, we have all those those powers except for the the parts four and five ones um, that, that I mentioned in the, as the bill was passing through 
the Iraq this last year, I think there was an indication from government that they see the Electoral Commission gaining um, additional powers, perhaps some of the electoral functions currently done by the Standards and Public Office Commission and other powers as uh, as time goes on. But we are a fledgling organization and I suspect we have to prove ourselves first and before we are entrusted with something as precious and fragile as our democracy. That, that, that minor chestnut. Uh, let's start then with that big bit of work that has been done, the Boundary Commission, uh, for 14 new TDs, 4 new constituencies. We talked about a lot on this podcast and people can listen back for, for a bit of analysis on it, That we, the snapshot analysis we did over the last couple of weeks. Um, how do you feel it went down overall? Are they, are they largely positive, but some people critical of bits like uh, like some constituencies having very large variants from the 30,000 people per TD, for example? Yeah, and uh, I, I think the... Um, I said at the outset that this was a battle between maths and geography and um, sometimes maths wins, sometimes geography wins and I, I did indicate well in advance that some people were going to be very disappointed with the outcome. Like in all battles, there are winners and losers, you know, and um, we don't prescribe them as such because the many of the comment, much of the commentary has been around the representatives, but we, we are politically blind in our work here and we focus entirely on the people who are to be represented as opposed to the representatives so um uh, that the people are our focus i think it um it went reasonably well i, I think it has landed reasonably well and and um uh, much of the commentary has been as you said around the variants and that was probably a risk that the um the commission took in extending the variance from plus or minus five, which was the traditional lumbar, we extended it to plus or and minus eight in order to protect um, county boundaries and in uh, and try and to ensure continuity as well, which are two of our big um, terms of reference as well. So it was a price that uh, had to be paid for that, um, but it was a price the commission um, were willing to pay, and it's one that I. Absolutely, wholeheartedly agree with. With the benefit of sort of a couple of weeks of hindsight and a lot of talking heads analysing it, is there anything you would have done differently? No, I don't think so. Um, everything that people have said in the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about since February. You know, there were a couple of issues that um, uh, that that stick out of my mind. You know, the, um, the 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 people in the western part of Kilkenny, in Erlingford, Freshford, and Tullaroane. Um, there's 6,314 people there who are now voting um, in Tipperary North. We tried everything to maintain um, the, the county boundary there, but the alternatives were even um, more unpalatable, unfortunately. So our inability to create six-seaters posed us some difficulties all around the country, you know, in places like Wexford and Fingal and, and Tipperary and, and even um, Carlo Kilkenny. So, um, and there are nine thousand two hundred and thirty-four people in South Donegal who we weren't able to help either. They're still voting um, in Sligo Leitrim because we needed uh, to fix some boundaries that that were difficult in that were difficult in, in Sligo Leitrim. So, we were able to fix um, Roscommon, and we were able to fix a, a large part of Galway East, but we just couldn't stretch as far as Donegal. So I can understand the disappointment of uh, people who feel that they're not voting with their tribe, they're not voting with their community. And our job as an electoral commission 
is to come to these territories and to talk to these communities and to talk to people about the importance of their vote. You know, and um, there has been some commentary, particularly about um, the Kilkenny um, the, the territory, that um, these people have been disenfranchised and um, they still have a vote. And there are enough people in that area to have a voice um, and to be represented um, by their local representatives. But it does need everybody to vote. So our job as an electoral commission is to um, engage with the public here, go to these communities and talk to them about the importance of their voice. Because if they don't, um, if they don't vote, then they weaken. They actually weaken the voice in the community. And um, our job is to explain that to them. Um, I'm not sure I'm looking forward to it, but it's certainly something we should do. Um, because we should grow up, we made we we should be growing up about it. We made the decision, and we should be answerable for it. And that's one thing that's different about um, this um, commission, uh, Sean. Because um, in the past, the boundary commission, when it did its review, published its report and then disappeared. You know, it dissolved. It was never accountable. It never had to explain decisions. We're going to be here for a long, long time into the future, and some of our values are around transparency and openness and public engagement. So um, it is right that we stand up and account for the decisions that we make. Mm. I suppose there's probably an element of if you do make a mess of something, I'm not saying any particular time this time, but in past where there's been messes, like I say, those people went off into the sunset. Whereas if you make a mess, you're going to have to just fix it yourself in five years time and heading down the road. Yes, indeed. Yeah. And and there will be an opportunity. And the, the way the population grows, um, who knows? You know, we don't know um, what the landscape will look like from a, we don't know what the range of TDs might be the next time. We don't know whether we'll be allowed to have six, seven, eight, nine seater constituencies or anything. And these all impact hugely on the uh, the landscape within which we have to work. So, um the, the next time, as it happens, and the census will be in 2027, and we will be obliged to do the Dáil European Parliament and local authority um, boundaries all at the same time in 2027 in order to have them settled um, in advance of the local uh, um, elections in 2029. So 2027 is going to be a busy year for us, but it will be an opportunity for us to be able to to relook at some of those areas that um, that that could certainly do with um, uh, reflection, further reflection. Mm. And the timing of these, of course, now no one knows the way they go, but they can all be a bit funny in the way that the locals and Europeans and generals have tend have been condensing in the last while. And of course, if we have a general election next year, twenty twenty four, like you say, you'll have a whole bunch in twenty nine again uh, to look at. Just on the six seat or seven seat or whatever it is, do you think there's merit going down that route? I know you've been asked to do a bit of research on and after this one, but you know, there's there's a sense that those larger constituencies, certainly five seaters, they benefit smaller parties, they benefit women, female candidates, for example, people who aren't incumbents in getting in. So is it better for democracy to go down that route? Yeah, the, the, the academics are right there um, in, in relation to this, that larger um, constituencies are more representative um, of the people. And um, so, they, I mean, they, they are very clear that the, the data is clear um, around that. At a practical level, we had a difficulty with that. We the number of five seaters that I mentioned earlier, you know, places like Wexford and Tipperary and and Fingal, 
you know, they were too big to remain as five-seaters. So we had no choice. You either create two, three-seat constituencies or you hack a piece off of a five-seater and add it to a neighboring constituency. That's the practical reality um, of that. We tried something a little more innovative in um, Wicklow and Wexford, which um, has uh, has had a mixed reception, perhaps because it was such um, an innovation. It was brand new. Um, but the, the commission decided that rather than taking a small part of a county and then adding it to another to create two, three seaters, they would create a large um, constituency with a substantial voice from each um, from each constituency. And um, the, the, the difficulty we had is that between Wicklow and Wexford, they were at perfect 11 seats. You know, um, it, we, we had to, do, to, to divide it up somehow, and, and that was the best way. I mean, I, I've, I've also listened to the um, the commentary about the the role of women. Interestingly, and, and I'm not sure that uh, constituency size alone is such a big factor. And we will have a look at this in much, much greater depth in, in due course. But I, I, I had a quick look at the last um, general election. And in the 10 three-seaters, which we had in the last general election, women were elected in eight of them. You know, and um, uh, and as it happens, that's a greater proportion of seats than in four seaters and five seaters. You know, mm-hmm. so um, so eight out of thirty um, seats, you know, is um, is still not anything like good enough. But it's not simple as simple as saying, well, because we have the number of three seaters that we have, that women are going to lose out. The evidence doesn't really support that. Because the um, the the answer, the solution to this is much more complex than a um, a, a, a simple, easy answer like that. Mm. And that's, I suppose, a, a question that's going to change at the next election too, with the new uh, requirement for forty percent of candidates to be females. It's going to be a difference. It'll be really interesting to see the way that shakes out. Actually, some of the other research, and you've got a, a head of a body of research to to do into, but some of them lowering the voting age, for example, a lot of talk about it. Is that a good idea? Um, well, well the, the countries who have tried it um, swear by it, you know, and again, the academic research in places like Scotland and Austria where um, that they have tried it recently has been overwhelmingly positive, you know. So um, I, I was secretary to the Constitutional Convention that made the original recommendation back in 2013 that we should reduce the age, the voting age to 16. I, I didn't think that 10 years later that um, I, I would be doing it as a significant body of work. We'll gather all the evidence, we'll gather all the pros and cons, and the Commission will consider that. I suspect that um, we will uh, have a, a chance to, to publish our findings sometime during the course of next year, but probably not in sufficient time um, for the next general election. So there is some time to, um, to consider this issue. But getting young people more and more involved in in political events and being more aware of politics can only be a good thing, you know. And the, the recent innovation to allow people to pre-register on the electoral register at sixteen and seventeen is 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 a, an overwhelmingly good thing as well, because um, the academics again would say that it, once you get into a habit as a young person of voting of getting involved. Then it's a habit that sticks with you and um, things you do in school and um, stick with you as well. And these are lifetime skills that people pick up. So um, I'm interested in exploring 
the downsides um, of, of this as well, because traditionally and anecdotally, I think there is always a fear amongst um, some within the political system that um, young people couldn't possibly be trusted um, to uh, with something as valuable as a vote. And um, but time will tell. We'll have a look at the evidence and we'll publish it. It's probably because it's such a significant issue. It's probably something we'll go and uh, do some public consultation about or hold some kind of an, an event where we will hear all sides and, and gather um, the, the, the public interest in this particular issue too. But um, getting young people more and more involved in political events and electoral events is certainly high on my list of priorities. And it's interesting that when you say about the registering early as well, I remember my first vote, I had turned 18 for the 2011 general election and couldn't get registered in time. And my first then ended up being uh, in the election. The juror, your former boss, got uh, got in that, that uh, November in the presidential. On just one last point on that, the on the, um, the, the, the voting age. I suppose the sense of one thing that occurs to me is that it might skew left wing in that you tend to be younger you tend to be a bit more liberal you tend to be that that you know just on the demographics of it does that play into thinking or has there been any evidence of that in other countries that if you open it up all these 16 nature ones they're all gonna vote left wing and the establishment right wing parties won't want it at all yeah i mean that that's the traditional thinking the anecdotal thinking is that um these um uh, yeah, younger people will vote that way the evidence that i have read and i've seen doesn't reflect that um, okay. to be absolutely honest it is a the um, full spectrum of uh, political thinking and ideology appears to be represented in sixteen to eighteen year olds. You know, so um, but again, we'll have a much deeper and broader look at this issue in the next six to eight months, and I look forward to publishing the findings um, on that for uh, a raptus consideration in the years ahead. You've also been asked to have a look at scrapping by elections, so changing to. A list system. This is what they do in the European Parliament, where if you elect uh, an MEP, like Marie McGuinness, let's take for example, who was elected, and when she was elected, she has to submit a list of of replacement candidates. But then, when she became a commissioner, someone else came in that w- that was top of her list. To, I, I kind of strikes me as a bit of a democratic deficit there, though, in that you don't might you know someone who's not elected at all, who's a body of the TD and was just put on the list for the crack, suddenly finds himself at the door. Yeah, I mean, I've been reading a lot about that. Um, the Irish Times letters page has um, I've been quite engaged on the subject since um, since the, our letter from the minister was published. You know, so um, again, it's something we'll have a look at the pros and cons. It does save the administration of um, of a by election and the bother and the length of time it takes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, if you had an automatic straight response, I mean. I don't have a view on this one way or another. Um, the commission will um, will reflect it, but um, I, I, this, I think it was a commitment in the program for governments that they would ask the electoral commission to have a look at this. I'm not sure that anybody um, in the government side is saying that this is government policy, etc. There is a curiosity around the issue, and um, for the reasons that I've just mentioned, perhaps they thought that it might be a good idea. But it, again. It's not something that's going to take us a huge amount of time to do some research on. I suspect we will have an early response to that particular question. But um, the the Irish Times letters page and the articles and social media and everyone who lit up on this particular issue seemed almost unanimous that this wasn't a good idea because people like to have a say. And they said it was just simply 
um, their government who tend to lose by elections try to protect their seat numbers and um, that it, that's certainly a viewpoint that the commission will will, will consider. Another one in that letter you mentioned for Dara Bryan, posters. Are they, uh, I, personally I'm biased, I like the posters but I'm a bit of a nerd so that way I like going around the different towns and you see them as you cross constituency boundaries but bad for the environment, are they a bit of a relic? I mean, the, um, the you should have the, the, the queen of political science, Theresa Reedy, um, on your podcast sometimes to talk about posters because she has done much of the um, the, the research um, in this space as well. She's a huge fan of posters, um, it, not only because it, it gives new candidates to uh, an opportunity to introduce themselves and um, and to be um, visible, but it also reminds people that there is an election on. You know, I think we, you, you and me, always assume that um, when an election is called, the entire world knows. You know, but um, but with referendums and lower order um, electoral events, uh, so-called lower order electoral events, then people, it's not until they see, start to see the posters going up on lampposts, something going on here, and um, and what's that all about? You know, so um, it, it is that there are two sides to this. Obviously, there's huge environmental damage that go, that that is done. Um, it does tend, they tend, getting rid of posters would tend to favor incumbents because we're already well known in the um, the, the political um, environment. So um, we'll have a look at, uh, at that. Some towns, you know, have come to um, informal agreements with candidates that they would only poster in certain parts of towns and villages and constituencies as well. And um, they seem to have come to so midway agreement in relation to that. So um, again, it's one of those issues where there's lots of evidence or lots of perspectives on both sides of the argument and the commission will weigh those up and make a call on in, in due course. In the, the minister's letter, um, he did ask for this issue to be treated as a priority um, in the list. So that would lead me to indicate that um, once we make a recommendation that if there is change to um, to happen, then the government might be keen to um, to act on that as well. So um, let's see. So there'll be no delay on our part in relation to that particular um, piece of research. It is quite niche, um, but it's very, very interesting. So um, you, you can watch this space with some interest. Yeah, I think there's some towns as well that go poster free. Arthur Mallow is coming to mind as the new, newly changed constituencies, of course, but they just agree no one puts up posters and then, you know, find it out. So a lot of that, a lot, there's a lot in all of that, obviously, but probably won't be ready for the next election. Is, is that fair? Uh, no, listen, I mean, the, um, the, the this commission has shown itself to have a great um, work ethic and commitment as well. You know, the, the Boundary Commission um, used to have a year or a little over a year um, to do their work. This commission did this giant piece of work in less than six months, you know. So um, I think that the idea that you would send something off to the commission and that'll be the end of it. We, we can kick the can down the road for a couple of years, etc. I think we might surprise some people with the speed of the turnaround of some of our research as well, because um, we're well up for this job. and. Um, uh, their commitment and uh, work ethic, Alan said, is, um, has been absolutely admirable. How quickly then can you turn around a referendum campaign? For, can you turn one around for the end of November? 
it depends on the wording, I suppose. You know, I've been um, hearing and seeing a lot about myself in um, in the media in, in recent days, but um, this stems from a comment that I made before the summer, you know, that um, in in an ideal situation, the, the, the commission would need between 14 and 16 weeks in order to run a proper campaign because we're a new body. We have to introduce ourselves to say what we're all about then talk about the fact that this is a referendum coming, so get yourself on the electoral register. And, and then when we see the wording, then we go and explain the wording, um, et cetera, as well. Um, we are in a state of readiness. We've been ready since um, the Taoiseach made the announcement in March that there was going to be re uh, referendums in November. So um, time is running short now. Um, I will be seeing the Taoiseach um, in a couple of weeks to talk about the, 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 the timing of it. Ideally, we would um, like 14 to 16 weeks, but we're in the hands of the Oireachtas um, as well. You know, if the Oireachtas say that this is what they want to do, then it's our job um, to simply go ahead and do it. There's no point in us um, complaining that we don't have enough time, etc. We will make the best of the time that's available to us. And so what kind of, this would be the first referendum you do, what kind of campaign would you be running? This is for, we should have said, the, the Women's Place in the Home referendum has been uh, just discussed the reference in the constitution to a one's place being home and the way that wording changes and i think when people look at it actually that wording could be particularly tricky it's probably why it's taken so long we due to publish the wording back in june and we still don't have it yet even though there is a version in government circles that's yet to be signed off on for something like that where we've seen in the past that referendums people don't understand fail is that a particular tricky point for you who's going to be running the information campaign yeah of course. I mean, this is why we ask for between 14 and 16 weeks, is that we do need time to properly explain it. And when people have questions, we stay in the room and answer the questions until all the questions are answered. And um, and that takes some time. Some of the finest minds, legal minds in this country um, have been looking at this issue for some time now, and we haven't yet landed on a wording, which just shows how complex this issue is. So um, uh, I know there are different options which they'll have to consider, etc. And like I said, we haven't seen the wording, so we don't know. But we look forward with great interest. And then when we see it, we'll have a better idea about how best to run um, a, a referendum information campaign. But we stand ready to do whatever it is that has the Rockets would like us to do. That particular campaign has the potential to get quite tricky and quite nasty online because you will be talking about obviously no one is saying there's no value to someone being in the home and being a caregiver. You sort of have to recognize that. There's also the gender identity question, which is a bit of a hot button at the moment. Will you, by the time this comes around, have a role in policing online media or, or online comments or is that going to be a bit later down the road? Uh, I, I think that's the part four and part five, the misinformation, disinformation um, aspect of uh, and the online political advertising is unlikely to be commenced by the time a November referendum comes along. But we do have a role in ensuring that the public have correct information and our job will be, um, as we see it, um, to become a trusted source of information for, for individuals. So if people are hearing um, uh, things that they that, that don't sound right to them or they don't agree with, et cetera, 
they can absolutely feel free to come to us and we'll make ourselves available through the media, through social media, online um, as well to answer questions that people might have. You know, the, this is something that um, every election management body in the world is um, looking at right now. And um, there are some great solutions um, internationally in relation to how this is managed. The, um, the Australian Electoral, Electoral Commission right now is running a referendum on The Voice, which is a, a new voice in chamber in, in Parliament um, uh, for Indigenous peoples. And they have a disinformation register um, on their website, which basically says, here's a load of things that um, have been said about this and that, that are not true. Here's the actual case, etc. So they go out of their way to highlight um, disinformation, misinformation as they see it, particularly around the electoral process and and, um, and the, the the case for and against. So there are things like that um, that you can do. They, um, there are a number of stop and consider um, campaigns um, as well. Is that if you hear something that really annoys you, makes you angry, or that you think is not to be true, you should consider the source. You know, and um, there is. A lot of people are getting involved in advance pre-bulking of issues. You know, if that you may hear something in the future about such and such a thing, this happens not to be true. And um, one of the commission's jobs, most important jobs, is to become a trusted source of information, so that if people are genuinely concerned about an issue, that they know where to go to get independent, impartial information. So th that's. One element of it. There's also the likes of takedowns. There's stuff on social media that no matter, you know, it stays up there, it gets shared a hundred thousand times. What's your role going to be there and how do you think you're going to get the cooperation of the social media companies? Yeah, well their cooperation is um is essential here, you know, and I see this as um a a, a collaboration, you know, because we do have a shared interest in ensuring that and the correct information is on um, on social media platforms. The legislation has some very strong powers um, for the chief executive, and it, you know, this legislation hasn't been commenced yet. But it was clearly the intention of the Oireachtas that, um, in the event of um, information remaining on a social media platform, that the chief executive would have powers to instruct social media companies to take down um, particular posts as well. But I would very much see that as a last resort. Um, I would much prefer to work with social media companies in in cases where the um, the, the the information is egregiously wrong, or just simply factually incorrect. And if we can demonstrate that we've examined this and considered it and present the evidence to the social media company, I'm hoping that should be sufficient in order to persuade them. Um, and in the absence of the legislation, we can use our own powers, you know, use our own voice to highlight um, cases where we believe that um, misinformation or disinformation is circulating and is being taken seriously. Because as uh, well as you know, Sean, the, the, the difference between misinformation and disinformation is all about intent. You know, somebody who create, purposely creates um, something in order to manipulate public opinion and um and this definition has been developed over time now to include public harm so if you can prove that somebody intended to to manipulate 
um, public opinion and intended to cause public harm and perhaps affect the electoral the, the integrity of an electoral event, then um, then it becomes something which is very serious and w- which we have to take action on. Your powers also extend to political advertising, and, and that can be a bit more nuanced because they're obviously trying to send a certain message. You mightn't agree with that message, uh, but you know, you, do they have the right to say it? So that like, that that, that a, strikes me as a particularly tricky one. Yeah, and, and um, the, the, the regulation of that is is absolutely much more straightforward, actually, because this isn't a freedom of expression um, issue necessarily. I mean, this is just simply all about transparency. You know, so okay. it is intended that advertising that online when it happens um, should show who paid for the information, who benefits, uh, etc. And also the um, the, the micro-targeting, if, um, if that's available as well, what kind of audience are you searching? So it's all about transparency. So the social media company would just simply show the beneficiary, show the, the payee and, um, and the audience that's targeted. So for every political ad that you see, you should be able to click on it to get that information which might will help you decide whether you want to believe this uh, political message or not. Mm, oh, but there's a Venn diagram that crosses there because there will be certain candidates in the in the next election who are of a particular view, and you know it could be something about immigration that is false. Yet they paid for it through political advertising. So, yeah, how do you deal yeah, with that? But, they, but, they can't really say what but, they like. Yeah, well, they, well, then it strays into the, um, the 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 part five, the disinformation category. You know that the um, there is both. They have to be transparent about the message, but also, I mean, the um, it is open to the electoral commission to consider um, whether the messaging here is disinformation or not. And just because you paid for it doesn't make it immune from any of the powers which would which might become um, available to the electoral commission as well. So it's a, an area. At least it's an area that's growing. We will learn every day from this experience as well. So it's not as if we're going to be and have opinions that are carved in stone in, in relation to this. But the, the whole political advertising online activity is um, is evolutionary. And we're occasionally, or quite often, criticized for being slow to catch up. But one of the things that the, um, the Electoral Commission was going to have to be is flexible and uh, able and to, to, to react very quickly. Because in the white hot heat, of an election campaign which lasts three weeks, we don't have the luxury of spending six months chin stroking, considering whether something is um, disinformation or not. I mean, we have to be fast, and there are sufficient safeguards built into the process as well. As chief executive, I make decisions in relation to this. There is an appeal process uh, to the electoral commission themselves, and then there's also the possibility of. Um, judicial review, you know. So, but th- this isn't all about um, the negative as well. I mean, there, there are bo- rights to be balanced here as well. There are freedom of expression, freedom of association, the rights of people to get involved in public affairs, and we need to manage or balance those rights with um, the 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 right that we have as a state to defend the electoral the, the integrity of electoral events. So we are very conscious that um, we are w- walking in very tall grass here and we need to be really careful. A few quick query ones. You've, you've been very good with your, your time, uh, so I won't keep you a huge amount more time, but we've got a, a couple to go through. Uh, firstly, you support Sheffield Wednesday. Why? 
<laughs> yeah, and most of the media interviews um, that, uh, that that I've done have landed on this spot eventually. You know, so as an eight-year-old, I liked the name, started following the name, looking out for results. And uh, Jack Charlton was the manager. We had just been promoted from the fourth division to the third division. So um, your team is your team, John. You know, you are probably a big brave. Man United or Liverpool supporter or something like that, but um, I was not that fortunate. I have I've been fortunate to see Sheffield Wednesday play at Wembley on a number of occasions in cup finals over the years, but um, we're in the doldrums right now. But um, ever hopeful. Yeah, I'm a Waterford man, so I can entirely emphasize with that. Unfortunately, um, are there any powers you don't have that you would like? Not right now. Um, I, I think uh, as you probably have, uh, uh, as you whirled through um, our inbox there over the last 20 minutes, I think you can understand that our um, our agenda is hugely full. Uh, and I do think that people are going to have to come to trust um, th- this body as an organization before you would think about adding to their additional powers. There are some which make sense in time, like some of the CPO powers, things like electoral expenses, donations, that, that kind of thing, which makes sense that would eventually end up with the Electoral Commission. But let's see if we can do what we've been asked to do right now before we talk about taking on anything else. But uh, it is absolutely my intention to produce high quality work, full of integrity and absolutely independent. And um, we, we look forward to growing the organization into the future. What's your view, particularly having worked for so many years the ORS you did, on the presidential franchise referendum, which we may have next year, and this is the one extending out the the right to vote in a presidential election beyond our shores to citizens abroad, passport holders, whatever it is, hasn't been decided. Um, one that in theory could be a big boost for the diaspora, but also there's an element of, well, if you've left, so you should leave your rights to vote at all. Yeah, these are exactly the things. And again, this was something else that was a, a recommendation from the original Constitutional Convention in at the end of 2013, almost 10 years ago. So it, it is a program for government commitment. And um, I understand that Tisha has, uh, has said recently that it is something that should be put to the people at the time of the presidential elect, the next presidential election, perhaps in in, in 2025. Those, um, those arguments that you have just presented are exactly the the ones that were presented um, 10 years ago and, and come up every single time. My interest, if I can be so bold here, my, my interest here is purely technical, you know, is, um, is the creation of an electoral register. You know, how on earth are we going to start um, creating a, an electoral register of the people who might be entitled to vote? And secondly, um, how on earth are they going to vote? You know, so... Um, it, the, these are things to uh, to work on. Is it postal voting? Are we going to start thinking about electronic voting again for our diaspora? I don't know. You know, so um, maybe time has changed in relation to the consideration of um, electronic voting. We are more dependent on it now, and we've become almost a cashless society. So, um, so perhaps it is the time to have a conversation again about it um, on a personal level. Um, I like our elections um, and uh, from a purely selfish electoral commission perspective, the elections give us and the counts give us the greatest educational opportunity possible um, to to uh, inform the Irish people in relation to how Irish electoral politics works, you know. So, um, 
but these are issues that um, that will be considered. Um, the, the the postal voting, electronic voting, is um, is something that someone's going to have to make a policy decision on. We will have a view um, on that, obviously, because the integrity of um, all, all to those issues um, is something we have to be very careful with. And I think initially, the political thinking was that you would simply go along to your local embassy, wherever it is that um, that that you are. And do something like similar to what we saw the Brazilians doing at Cypro Park um, last autumn. And there's something very heartwarming about that. In Ireland's case, um, are, are we going to expect half a million people in Northern Ireland to get in a plane to fly to London on a day in October? Um, that'll be enough to put Michael O'Leary's uh, grandchildren through college, I would have thought, in, um, in air fares. But... Um, it, it, there are technical issues like that which we will have to look at. So there are once the the initial policy decision is made, um, then we our job will be to work out how best to deliver it for the people of Ireland and at home and abroad. Uh, well, Arthur O'Leary, Chief Executive of the Electoral Commission, you've been very good uh, with your time, and hopefully that gives the people a bit of a run through of what you're doing because it is such a big piece of work that will affect everybody. But I just wanted to know, and I'm sure you do know this. How much uh, rancor is probably the wrong word, but how much crack was going on the night before the Boundary Commission when all the Finnegalers thought Fianna Fáil had got a copy and all of uh, Labour thought the Social Democrats had got a copy and they were all there uh, mulling over. And of course, then in some instances, it was entirely different from what you did, but they were all saying, God, that Art O'Leary definitely uh, shifted a copy to John Curran who gave it to Fianna Fáil, of course. Yeah, I, I think the... Um, uh... A number of journalists. I learned a lot about journalism in the run-up publication, <laughs> by the way, um, uh, of the report. But um, we were very keen that nobody gets a copy and that we would keep it um, under wraps. And with every podcast that I listened to, with every article um, that, that I read, I would always send a message to the senior team, the Electoral Commission, just to say that, well, that media organization has no leak, uh, no informer inside the process anyway. So we were very successful. In order for it to work, it um, it had to be confidential right to the last moment. And um, everybody who was involved in the process, um, to their great credit, um, managed to keep it to themselves. And um, to the best of my knowledge, there were no leaks in advance of it. And, um, I mean, I, I know the people in Leicester House well enough. I've been there for um, for thirty years. They everybody loves to get the information um, early, and my job was to sit on the other side of that fence and um, and say um, no, thank you. I had the reports ten days before we published them locked away in um, in a vault somewhere, and um, because producing the maps and producing the um, the documentation and the report itself. Had to be, um, had to build in some uh, some time, extra time, just in case something went wrong. But um, it all went okay. But they were a nervous ten days, um, I have to say. And no copy of the report left the building. And the commission members, to their great credit, um, didn't leak anything to anybody. I know, I know that some of them got a tap on the shoulder to say, and he can tell us about such and such a place, etc. But. Um, uh, but I was delighted uh, to, to discover that um, when we released it at 8.01 on um, the 30th of August, that nobody in the room appeared to have seen sight of anything before. 
And I cannot emphasize how much of an achievement that is in 21st century media landscape where everyone is bugging you all the time, where it's all social media. And I remember walking, it was probably about quarter past seven that morning and I had been in the news talk office so I walked over to the launch and I ran into Pat Kenny in the lift and he was like, come on, you must have the details by now. And I said, no, they're airtight. And the, the look of sort of quiet annoyance, but you know, impressed on his face, you, you would have very much appreciated it. You can keep the image in your head. Yeah, well, well, thank you for that. And uh, again, as, um, as as some of your uh, colleague uh, political correspondents have said, that it was annoyingly a closely guarded secret, you know. So um, anyway, so we're too close to the budget now. We're- I, I'm glad it's over and that we don't have to do one for another five years, but um, we learned a lot from this process. And interestingly, one of the recommendations in the report was that we would have a look at the way that we do um, boundary um, reviews and constituency reviews because, um, I mean, we were delighted that we had a record number of public submissions. Um, in this particular case, we had 556. And, um, but some of them um, made a very valid point is that when we have a range between 171 and 181, whether we pick 171 or 181, the landscape changes um, completely. So it's almost impossible to make a proper submission to the Electoral Commission without hazarding a guess in relation to what the number is likely to be. And most people assumed that we would land on the at the higher end of the range in order to try and future-proof um, the, uh, the, the the process. But um, so some of their um, their recommendations uh, couldn't be possible, but um, but they were recommendations that were considered um, at some length by the Commission. Particularly, I mean, over half of the people said that um, we'd like to maintain county boundaries. So that's what we did. We protected county boundaries um, to the greatest extent possible. And apologies again to the people of Erlingford and South Donegal. Um, but they, uh, we had no choice in those instances. Arthur Leary, Chief Executive of the Electoral Commission. Thanks so much for chatting to us on Let Me Explain this week. Sean Defoe presenting with John Kill as the editor and Lachlan Hart on sound. We'll chat to you next time.